This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on Second Mission Foundation, including current lines of effort, future lines of effort, past lines of effort, everything you want to know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal's always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest today was Steve Callahan. Steve, um, I think I first heard about him through seeing Ashes of Helmand, his Instagram page, pop up on my feed over and over. And um, there was poetry on it that was interesting, um, but it was like, you know, there's no name attached. I didn't know who it was. And I think um, Dex, who obviously has been on the show, uh, kind of introduced me to Steve and was like, hey, this there's this dude, Steve Callahan. He runs Ashes of Hellman page. And I was like, oh, that's who that is. And uh, we had him on one of Vet Reps Right Loud uh, events on Instagram Live. Uh, as you'll hear me mention in the episode, he was all blacked out. He was like at nighttime on Veterans Day at the event that he was. he'll talk about in the episode uh, in Philly. But it was at nighttime, so he... See, if it was an Instagram live, like I couldn't see him at all. I had no idea what he looked like still. And then, uh, and this was really the first time we, we clapped eyes on each other. So uh, it was just such a good, chill, um, bull session talking with Steve. I really enjoyed it. Um, he's an interesting guy. And I think my some of my biggest takeaways um, from this conversation, besides the fact that we do a deep dive into the mysteries and myths of New Jersey, <laughs> which is something I didn't plan, but it just seemed to make a lot of sense uh, with Steve as a New Jerseyite. Um, but besides that, I, I think you know, we really ended up having a, a conversation I'll really think about for a while. You know, the, I don't know what the right word is to describe it. It's not a curse, certainly, but the phenomenon, let's say, of um, soldiers and Marines in combat MOSs, I guess even for non-combat MOSs, but especially when you're in a combat MOS, who served during the GWAT and yet 
never saw combat. It's an interesting phenomenon. And Steve, much like, as I say in the episode, much like Mason Roadrig, um, articulates some of that well. And I think it's just a very interesting phenomenon. And one I think is worth thinking about with certainly the suicide rates and, and the mental health issues and all that. It's there. I don't know how big a factor it is. Again, I'm not an expert here. I'm, I'm really speaking just from my foxhole, but how can it not be? Um, how, how can it not contribute to um, a sense of, of regret or unfulfilled potential or, um, you know, some of the other things we talk about in the episode, I don't want to give away too much because we do talk about it at length, but I really enjoyed talking about it with Steve. And um, the other thing I really liked about Steve was that Kerouacian, if that's a word, sense of adventure, the sense that he really was never not a writer. He just, he needed to do some adventuring. And so he joined the Marines. That's, uh, that's cool, man. I mean, uh, you know, like he says, a lot of people, you know, Google, like, what is it like to do cocaine? Cause they're aspiring writers and they want to know what that experience is like. There's a lot of self-destructive things you can do to get dirt under your nails. And, uh, Steve, I think did a very healthy thing. Uh, in joining the Marines that, that, you know, has had good and bad second and third order effects. But I think it's a, um, I think it reaffirmed for me the importance for so many people in so many different walks of life to consider the military. It's interesting to see how the military affects different people and what it does for them, whether or not they are career military. And in fact, usually, especially if they are not career military, what it adds to their life, certainly sometimes what it subtracts from their life. Um, But it's interesting, the perspective, the real world experience it can give people. Um, Anyway, really enjoyed talking with Steve. I think you guys are going to dig it too. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Steve Callahan's Profile in Havoc. show steve hey thanks for having me i'm glad we could do this man you know last time yeah, i'm excited we, we talked was like uh when you did uh vet reps right loud and you were in the dark so i had no fr- i still had no <laughs> idea what you looked like i was like i don't know yeah. i talked to him for 15 minutes but i have no idea who he is still yeah um it's good to actually see you in the light man yeah man it's uh it's i'm not too far away from where i actually recorded that i was up up the streets of philly uh, for the Marine Corps birthday, they have a every year they have this block party that they sequester, um, and it is like the Marine Corps mecca. And so it was my second year attending, and it's a blast. It's a blast. What happens? What do they do? So are they have lots of music. Drinking. Okay. Yeah. So in the daytime, they have like uh, different tents that you can go to. People will sell like uh, last year. Um, they had a guy selling Marpat quilts or kilts, not quilts, kilts. Um, so there was a bunch of dudes wearing Marpat kilts and uh, a couple dudes selling coffee. And they have like a, it's like a block party in the daytime. And then at night, it is, it is definitely a alcohol induced 
haze. <laughs> and, yeah. and what's the uh, what's the arrest record during the uh, alcohol induced phase part of the night? I can tell you for certain we dodged one the night that I read. <laughs> Me and my buddies, we the cops were one hundred percent called. Um, I was sober. I was like, I felt like a uh, a kindergarten teacher, like running around and hey, you know, don't don't fight him. Get that out of your mouth, you know. Like I was running around, like try try to stop all my friends from going to jail. But they the cops were one hundred percent called. Yeah. What is it like? Is it like a uh, this close to becoming a, like a barracks brawl? Like every year is that kind of the vibe, or is it collegial? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's right. it's uh, it's it's hard to describe. It's like a barracks brawl, but in the best possible way. It, like mosh pit slash barracks yeah, absolutely. brawl. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like collegial beating the shit out of each other. Yes, sir. It's like an organized fight club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's, it's a good you. time. What's the age range of people that come to that? Is that something really the still younger Marines go to, or do you see the old timers coming into? Oh yeah, there was a ton of old time. So the youngest dude that was there was an eighteen uh, year old kid who was on his ten day boot leave. So he had just graduated boot camp in his dress blues, and then uh, there was like a, a few a few dudes that were there that that looked to be like eighties. Uh, a couple of dudes um, in their seventies. Yeah. My, my ex, her grandfather was a, a Marine served in world war two. And she, when we were together, she would tell me like he, he would go to that thing every year, every year while he was able-bodied. Um, and he passed when he was 96 or 97, I believe. And wow. I, I think he was there into his nineties. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. That's freaking crazy. Are you from Philly originally? Is that your hometown? No, I'm from South Jersey. So I'm I'm right now, I'm about 30 minutes from Philadelphia, but I grew up uh, about an hour to the southeast. But you know Philly. Like Philly was oh, like yeah. your big city. It was like the city Philly's you were my closest city. to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. I'm a big Eagles fan, Philly's fan. You know, it's um, funny. Yeah. I was I was talking about this. I mean, as a New Yorker, I talk about this, you know, I talk about Jersey a lot, usually in derisive terms. But I have sure. a theory about Jersey. I have a feeling like there's so many successful people that have come from Jersey. And I think my theory is that they all wanted to get the hell out of Jersey and they had to bust their ass and they're willing to do whatever it took. So you get your Springsteens and your John Bon Jovi's. And, yeah. like, and I remember, like, I even remember um, like uh, the original Battle of Mogadishu, not the original, like there's been another one, but the Battle of Mogadishu <laughs> hit me really sure. hard because um, right. I was a junior in high school and I was like, I was really interested in like the army and all that stuff. And I remember um, when Newsweek did like a, a thing, like they showed the pictures of all the Rangers that had uh, died in the battle and they put just their hometown and a brief description about them. And I, I don't remember exactly, but I, I, I feel like 70, 80% of them were from Jersey. And I was wow. like, what the hell's going on in Jersey, man? Like, what, yeah. what, what is it about people in Jersey? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, uh, what does a Jersey person feel like? Do you feel like a kinship with other New Jersey dudes when you're not in Jersey and you bump into each other and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, you made it out. Like, is there that sense or is that, am I just making this up? Yeah, I think Jersey is, it is its own entity unto itself. There is like, there is a rivalry within New Jersey um, where we can talk shit on each other. Like there's a very famous, there's two famous rivalries. Taylor Ham versus Pork Roll and whether or not Central Jersey exists. 
Those are like the two big debates in the state. And you can talk shit with each other. If you're from Jersey, you're like, hey, man, it's it's definitely pork roll. And if you disagree, you can go fuck yourself. Am I allowed to swear? You totally are allowed to swear. But oh, okay. what, wait, All explain right. that to me. What is Are we talking like, is this like Wawa's and... Uh, is that like that kind of thing, or is it? Are these convenience stores? What are we talking about? I don't. I don't know this at all. No. You've never heard of Taylor Ham? No. It's a breakfast meat. It's it's like bacon, but it's it's uh, I I'm pretty sure it's just like pig ground up. I don't know what it is, but it's good. If you've never had a pork roll and cheese, I'm telling you, on a bagel, whew, it's, I'll tell you, it's life changing. My 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 view. I am such a provincial New Yorker. Do you, ever see that? Do you ever see that like a famous New Yorker cartoon of it's called a New Yorker's view of the world. And it like yeah. starts at the bottom of Manhattan Island and it's just a cartoon, but it's like, you can see like street by street, all of downtown Manhattan. And then it go all the way up to Harlem and then get to the Bronx, a little <laughs> fuzzier. And then there's like Connecticut and Jersey's yeah. over here. There's yeah. a bunch of stuff and California's way over there. And that's it. <laughs> that's like the New Yorker's view of the world. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's, I mean, like, like I, I feel like I've been more well-traveled and I've lived out of the city for a long enough time now, but shit like that, that I probably should know. That is I so don't. funny. And it's yeah. like right there on my doorstep. And what's the it's other right one? There. Central Jersey? That there's yeah, no Central, Jersey. Central Jersey. Yeah. So th- there's, there's, there's two classes of people. There's people that believe that there are two sections of New Jersey, North and South, which I am a firm believer. That is a hill that I die. Um, <laughs> and then there's people that are from this amorphous land of Central Jersey that claim that that's where they live, and they are wrong. They is that are from Dicks? Is that supposed to be Dicks? Is Dicks supposed to be Central Jersey? That whole area around oh, there. Like yeah, it's a bit further north. A bit oh, okay. further north than than Dicks. Um, but around that area is this okay. weird Bermuda Triangle of New Jersey. What's the cultural difference between North Jersey and South Jersey? Completely different. It's, what is it? South Jersey, you get a mixture of good old boys, like like Southern Hicks, and like very Italian Americans. Yeah, um, of which I am both. Of which I am both. My 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 grandfather was Italian. He immigrated. Uh, he actually joined the Marines. He fought in the Korean War and immigrated over. And we sort of married into a good old boy country blumpkin type of uh, lifestyle down here in South Jersey. So like you'll down here you'll you could drive. I could drive maybe 10 minutes and there's an outdoor shooting range, you know, you can go to and hunting spots, but North Jersey is very much uh, urban uh, area. There's a lot like Newark is a really big city up there, Trenton. um, And they're closer to the city. Um, And so they are more uh, like hoity toity, I guess. And suburban, right? Like a really super suburban area. Yeah. It's, um, so my my love hate relationship with Jersey. I know we're doing a lot on New Jersey. I promise this will not all be on New Jersey, but um, it's it rare. That I, it, it's rare that I get the chance to actually talk to somebody <laughs> from Jersey who can speak yeah. intelligently about this. So, <laughs> I my love hate relationship with Jersey started in college when I had a warrant, a bench warrant for my arrest in the state of New Jersey. Amazing. So I and I went to college in Virginia, 
So going from the city to Virginia, I would drive really carefully down sure. 95 through Jersey. I was like, I cannot get pulled over in Jersey. Sure. Um, it was not for anything really super sexy and awesome. I wish it was. It was just because this car dealer and I got in a fucking dispute and he sold me a lemon that I that actually kind of ironically, it shat the bed when I was going to a judo tournament in Quantico. And uh-huh. it shat the bed right outside the gates of Quantico. I don't know if it's still there, but there was this gas station, like must have been less than a thousand meters from the gate. Yeah. And um, and I left the, <laughs> I left the car there, and I never paid the dealer. And the dealer was like tried to attach my property, but he had no jurisdiction. So the best he could do is put a bench warrant out for me in New Jersey. So I always drove true. very very slowly through Jersey. So that that was a big mark against. I was like, okay, fuck Jersey just for my own personal freedom. Yeah, but. Um, but then I recently drove through North Jersey, which I avoid like the plague because North sure, Jersey, I mean, it's not just suburban. It's also just fucking traffic. Hell, the swamplands of Jersey. Oh, ridiculous. I mean, giant stadiums there. You're close yeah. to the city. You got Lincoln Tunnel. The, it, and even Siri, Siri loses her mind in North Absolutely. Jersey. She gets all kinds of turned around. And I've, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been dealing with Siri there for however long Siri's been around and yeah. Siri never gets it right. Siri always like, Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you the exits back that way. You're like, son of a bitch, Siri. Yeah. Every time without fail. But, um, I was driving through Jersey and I, I, instead of going down the turnpike, I was driving along the water's edge and I drove through Edgewater and into Hoboken, which when yeah. I was growing up in the city, I mean, you might as well have said Nevada. Like, I mean, those were, <laughs> sure. you know, like they're just the boondocks, they're boonies out there. Now I was like, holy shit, I would move to Edgewater. I was like, they've oh, got yeah. like CrossFit gyms there. It's sleek. Everything's really convenient. I was like, yeah. it's right on the water's edge. I was like, shit, that's pretty freaking nice, man. So yeah. I was like, I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I've found a place in Jersey. I would live if I had to go. live in Jersey. So yeah. Anyway, if you had to, if I had to, if I had if to. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't plan on it. It's it's okay. It is what it is for right now. But would you leave? Would you leave in a heartbeat if you could? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I would love to go out west, like Oregon or Montana, out in the mountains. Um, but that's the thing about Jersey too is that you you really do get a diverse sort of landscape. Where if you go north, there are it's beautiful. The state is beautiful. Like as trashy as it can be. Right. You got you have the coast and then you have the mountains. Um, you do have this dichotomy of it's a weird state. It's a very, very weird state. And not a lot of people know. There's actually memes that I've seen where where it talks about the beauty of New Jersey and they'll put like the Grand Canyon. It'll be like like driving through the Lincoln Tunnel. It's like the first thing you see in, <laughs> in New Jersey. And it's like a, a, a video of the Grand Canyon. But the state is genuinely like surprisingly beautiful, as trashy as it is. It's both. It's crazy. It's like I'm going to try to draw a very clumsy parallel. Is that I feel like New Jersey is sort of like the Marine Corps, in that it gets more and more beautiful the more you're out of it. Like the further away from it you are, the more you're like, you know, Jersey's really good. Boy, that's this, and you like to talk about it, and you're like, hey, it's really awesome. When you're there, you're like, son of a bitch. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Am I you right? Is, is there perfect. something to that? That's that's perfect. That's perfect. The closer you are getting out of it, the, the more beautiful it is. Yeah. When did, when did you when did you join the Marines? Were you right out of high school when you joined? 
No, I, I was a late bloomer. Um, I joined in 2016 and I was 23 years old. Okay. And what prompted you to join then at that point? I, you know, the lore regarding that, it's kind of like the Joker story where it changes, I feel like, over time. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember the central thing was is I had um, a dream that I was serving my country in some capacity. Um, I, I, was, I had this dream. I woke up and I was like, this is something I want to pursue. And my cousin was in the debt program for the Marines. And so I said, you know, like, hey, man, I'd I'd like to talk to a recruiter at least just to see, like, what is going on with this. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to the Marine Corps recruiter and I was like, okay, I I dig what he's saying. And my mom was mortified and said, well, you should pick another branch. If you're going to join the the military, you should pick another branch. And like I said before, my my mom's dad was in the Marine Corps. He, He fought in the Korean War. And my dad's dad was in the Air Force, and he got out right before Vietnam. Mm. And so I knew that I was going to pick one or the other. If I was going to join the military, I was going to follow the legacy of, of one of those guys. And so I went to the Air Force recruiting office uh, one day with my dad, and there was a sign on the door, and it said, out to lunch, be back in 20. And I was like, I'm good. I got my answer. And so I went back to the Marine Corps recruiter and he actually kind of scummed me pretty hard um, as recruiters do. You know, he, I, I, he, I scored whatever. I forget what I got on the ASVAB high enough to do whatever I wanted. Cause that's what he okay. told me. He was like, you can do whatever you want in the Marine Corps. And I was like, okay, cool. I want to go kill bad guys. And he was like, no, nah, nah, you, you don't have to be infantry. You could, you can do whatever you want. Right. And I was like, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, man. You can be into it. You can be this, this, this. I was like, all right, well, if I can do whatever I want, I'd like to be infantry, if that's okay. And he was like, well, I don't have any active duty infantry spots available, but if you really wanted to do it, I reserve a spot and you could go to school, you could go to college. And, and I swear to you, this is true. I, I don't know if I've ever told any of my buddies this, funny enough. What he told me was, I would do four four years reserves and the last two years, because reservists are six-year contracts, four years reserves, active reserves, and the last two years of that contract would be active duty. That's what he told me. And I was like, I was a you know dumb 23-year-old. I was like, sure, man, cool, sounds good. Signed the papers. And when I got to SOI, um, one of my combat instructors was a former recruiter. And I was like, very nonchalantly like, Hey, staff sergeant, you know, I was just kind of thinking about the logistics of what my recruiter was saying. And, you know, he was saying this, this, and this, how, how is that going to work? And he was like, bro, he fucking lied to you, like hardcore lied to you. And I was like, um, I'm a reservist. He was like, yeah, dude, you're just a reservist for your entire career. Congratulations. And I was like, damn. Yeah. That's so weird. That's yeah. so bizarre. And but yeah. you know something that is it's a really annoying thing with the Marines. And I think it's because when you join the Marines, everyone that wants to fight is joining the Marines. So they lose those combat spots. Army, it's like they'd love it. Hey, go infantry, man, all day yeah. long. But it, but in the Marines, I because I remember when I first tried to join the Marines in the mid-90s, couldn't get an infantry spot. 
Yeah. And they were like, no, they're like, we could do reserve and you could do logistics. And I was like, and they're like, yeah, yeah, but remember, <laughs> you'll, you'll still be a Marine. And I'm like, motherfucker, like, I, yeah. I get it. I know there's a lot of advertising behind that, but uh, dude, I want to be infantry. It's so weird how that goes, how that's like such a sexy assignment and it's, yeah. it's harder to get. But what's also really weird is the way that he phrased that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like, know, because I'm trying to think even what the upside of that is. Like, do did he was he getting the sense that you weren't going to join the Marines at all if you couldn't go active duty? Probably. Uh, well, not not active duty. I, like infantry was my deal breaker. Like that was that is what I wanted to do. More than um, whether you're reserve or active. Yeah, I didn't care. So like I, that seems like an unnecessary lie. Like, why wouldn't you just say, hey, you're doing six years as an infantryman in the reserves? Who gives a fuck? Yeah. He the way he did it was he was uh he kind of struck my ego and appealed to my intelligence and was like, you know, you're a smart kid. Go to go to college while you're in your first years of the reserves, and then you can commission as an infantry officer, and then go active duty that way and be an infantry officer. Oh, and I was like, oh, okay, like fair enough, like that's what I'll do. That was the plan. And then I, after my deployment, I was like, nope, I'm good. I'm I'm checking out as soon as my time card's done. Like, the- okay, I want to get to that because that uh, that begs a lot of questions. Sure, but before I do, let me just set the table a little bit. What were you doing? In life, what was your job before you got in the Marines? I was a barista at Starbucks. And how was that working out for you? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> what did what were you trying to do? What did you think you were gonna do? What was I, how was I wanted this? to be a, a writer? Yeah. That's what I wanted to do, a novelist. So that was an early ambition of yours, was to be a writer. Oh yeah. I mean, so the earliest memory I have, um, I don't remember much of my childhood, but the earliest memory I have is about 12 or 13 years old. Um, and my, I had a bunk bed, you know, in my room and the top bunk was the bed. And then underneath was like an open area with a desk. Mm-hmm. And that's where I did my schoolwork. And I remember I had a dream and I woke up from this dream and I was like, I, this is, I got to write this down. Like, this is, this is something here. And so I remember writing it down and the thing that I wrote down has evolved from 12 to now I'm 30 and is, is literally incorporated in the novel that I'm writing at the moment that it has been such a pervasive line throughout my life. And that's like one of my earliest memories of childhood is, is literally like, this idea from a dream, like I have to write this down. This is something important. Were other stories coming? Did other stories come? Yeah. Uh, other stories came and they went. Um, mostly they went because my, I was raised very religious. Um, my dad was a, a non-denominational Protestant pastor. Um if you're a churchgoer and you know of Calvary chapels, um, my dad was a Calvary pastor. And so the, the, the stories that I was drawn to and the ideas that would come to me were a bit darker, um, not honoring Christ, if you will. And so I felt a lot of guilt and like shame being in that religious culture. And so I would have this idea and I'd write it down and then I'd scrap it and throw it away. Um, But 
the the ones that I believe really need to be told have stuck around for many, many years. Do you continue to find new inspiration or are you still trying to mine those and develop them? Uh, yes, both. Um, <clears throat> the way I describe, so I have a notebook that I carry everywhere and an idea will come and I'll write it. That's great. Yeah. And that's the way it is. The, the main idea the the story that like, the seed was planted, like I said, about 12 or 13. The way I look at that story is like a, a kink in the hose. Like I have to unkink that and everything else is going to. Yep. Once I finish that thing, it's, it's everything else will be able to come out. Yeah, that really, um, that resonates a lot with me. That's uh, that I, I used to think of writing as like bank robberies in the heat. Like the way Daniel yeah. would talk about him. He's like, okay, first we do this one. Then we do this one. That thing's got to fall. Then this comes through and all that. Yeah. Um, my dad wrote for his whole life trying to tell a story. Yeah. Um, he initially started out writing short stories, but then he fixated on one story and he spent his whole life trying to write it. And he was like, yeah, I'll write other stuff once I get this one done. And it never happened. And mm -hmm. I became less a fan of that after. Uh, because I was like, oh, fuck, probably to my detriment because it gave me ADD. I was like, don't get too fixated. Like, make sure you keep diversifying, diversifying. Like, yeah, like yeah, stuff. yeah. But, um, but it, I totally get that way of thinking that, yeah, you got to – that's a great way of putting it. Unkink the hose so you can get that flow going. And, um, yeah, I think as long as you keep developing other stuff and keep the, the muscles fresh and, you know, all that <laughs> – Sure. I, I mean, I know what happened. What, what killed me uh, about what my dad did is there was um, the stories became marked in time, not because he was writing for a specific time period, but just, you know, the, I think there's certain ebbs and flows to subject matter. Sure. Is, isn't always not just relevant, but life moves past it. And by the sure. time he really had something, I ended up publishing some of his short stories after he died because he never got it all published. Mm. And I was like, it's dated, man. It's it, this would have been great in 1965. Sure, it was just it it lost its loop in the universe. It was just as off kilter. I don't know. I, I so I but you saying that kind of sparked all that in me. I, it's yeah. it's, a, it's a completely relatable way of doing it, and I'm rooting for you. That's that's right. a because that's a fucking that's a fucking great feeling to be able to unkink that hose and actually get oh, the yeah. thing out there. How close are you to having it done? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I got about 20,000 words. Done. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I don't really look at it. Like, uh, I have an idea of how it's going to be, but it could be longer. It could be because in truth, um, when you were talking about like the cycles of, of life, <clears throat> the story has evolved from what it was i mean the idea that started it to where it is now if i didn't if, I, if there's a dream sequence within the novel okay when i was a kid i had a dream i told you i wrote it down and the dream was i was sitting in front of a table um like a norman rockwell painting mm -hmm. okay and uh there's 
instead of like food, there's, there's body parts all over this table. And there's a woman in a, in a burlap dress with like branches, you know, coming out of her head, like antlers. Mm-hmm. And she's got like a burlap strip over her eye. That was the dream. That was this, that was what started this thing. Mm-hmm. And it is literally a dream sequence within this novel. And it serves as a vehicle for another mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But there were various things that dominoes that had to fall in my life for me to unlock mm-hmm. different parts of this story. Um, and I think that they've all fallen. So I think that now it's just going to be a matter of finishing it um, because it is something that I've put on the back burner and then something would happen. Like joining the Marine Corps was a huge key to the story. And then I work on it and put it on the back burner. And then going to Afghanistan was a huge key and then so on and so forth. Um, and I think they've all fallen. And so I think it's only just a matter of time before it's done. When you left high school, did you think a writing career was imminent or were you like, Hey, I'm just going to pay my dues, do whatever I have to do to survive and just try to find a way to write. Like what was your, what was your game plan coming out of high school? Um, <clears throat> I was very naive coming out of high school sure. uh, as everyone is, you know? Um, and I, I looked at my writing, I looked at it as eminent. Yes. And I looked at it in the same way that a 19 year old girl going to Hollywood to make it big looks at her burgeoning acting career. I was like, all I got to do is wait tables at a restaurant and Stephen King's going to walk in and be like, Hey, you look like a writer. Do you have a manuscript? And I'm like, I, you know what I do. It's in the <laughs> and and <clears throat> that is what I thought it would be. Um, but like I said, life, I believe that life guides you to where you mm. need to be. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as sharp as a writer as I am now without the experiences that I've gone through for sure. Um, and I think that including those as being a, a, a starving writer, including your time as a barista and writing. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That was foundational. Yeah. foundational. Were you studying uh, at the collegiate level or, or taking extra classes or doing anything or were you just writing? I was just writing. I mean, I would take like, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. I didn't know as far as like a, a backup plan, the parachute. Right. 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 Um, and so I was doing gen ed courses at my local community college just to have something, you know? Um, and that was really what, that was really what inspired. I had an English teacher who was great. I mean, my first, the first poem I ever wrote that was not for an assignment was written because of him and it had nothing to do with, I mean, <clears throat> I'll never forget this to be honest with you. Cause I, it was one of those moments that I found incredibly hilarious for no reason. And we were talking about um, minority groups and, and, and artists from different minority groups. And we were covering um, poets at the time. And he had come into class and said, today we're going to talk about lesbian poetry. And I said, like, oh, that sounds kinky. Like, right. <laughs> Okay. And then he proceeded to read these pieces that were just like, they were just poems 
right. who were written by a lesbian. You know, they were right. just like, right. And so I thought like, what does that like? That's I, what does that have to do with lesbian poetry? So I sat down afterwards the next day um, at home and I wrote a lesbian poem, um, which was, you know, graphic and it was a, you know, whatever, but that was the first real poem that I wrote. And it, it was like, Oh, I, I could do this. Like I, I really could, I could do this. And cause it was a joke poem, obviously. Right. Um, <clears throat> because I, I truly just could not understand like the dichotomy. I was like, what does her, what does her like loving to eat pussy have to do with the creative work? And I wanted to write something as a joke and I was like, no, I can, I can do this seriously. Like, I, I got it. So that's, that is funny. That's, so that's how that opened up the art form to you, was yeah. first as a lark, and then going, oh, shit, this is actually a really amenable art form. Oh, yeah. Me. It's a game. Yeah. I, I look yeah. at poetry like a game. It's, it's, a, it's a game, and the rules can change. And that's the beauty of it, is that you can write a Shakespearean sonnet an iambic pentameter and you could you could follow bukowski's line of poetry which is very much like conceptual is the way i would describe it mm-hmm. and it's all beautiful it's all like that's the that's the thing about poetry is it's all beautiful in its own right um it's a malleable art form truly yeah, absolutely so now when you're 23 and you're 5 years roughly into being a barista mm. and working on stuff. Were you writing every day at this point? I mean, what's your, how are you feeling? What's your life consisting of? What's your battle rhythm day in, day out at that point? Yes. Um, pretty much. I would write at night. I was in a relationship. Uh, so I would, you know, go on dates and come back and write and or go to work. And sometimes I'd write at work. Um, and in, in my hometown, it would get like, incredibly busy during the summer months it's a tourist trap and so in the summertime it was very tightly wound so to speak excuse me and like my time was just spent working and that is it it sort of opened up the the fall time for me so like like september Mm. to november that's that's my golden hour. That's that is when I'm the most creative. It is when um, most of the work gets written. It's the my best, like my best writing is done in those months. And I think it's just that muscle memory of time. And you know the the season changes and it's beautiful outside. And um, so, and so in the summer you? months, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say in the summer months the the writing sort of stopped. And that's been a, a benchmark for me as like an accordion. Huh. You know? Where were you at emotionally then at 23 before you joined? Were you like, I'm sick of this shit? Were you disillusioned? Were you bitter? Were you anxious? Were you, what was going on for you at that point? In terms of like writing? In terms of life. Yeah. Writing mm-hmm. as well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, all of it, you know, I mean, what, what was the, what was the inciting incident that guy drew you to go, hey, I need to make a radical life change. That's a good question. I don't, I, I think, 
I think what I was feeling at the time was incomplete. Like I'm very emotionally aware. And I think I knew almost like when you write a character and you know that you're going to have to break their heart, you know, that, you know, that the character has to go through something in order to crack open and evolve, right? Like a seed has to explode in order for a tree to be born. And I, I was very acutely aware that I was complete. I was missing some element and I think what I was missing was the tenacity, I think would be the right word, of being a Marine. There is a unique culture within the Marine Corps um, that looking back now, well, how could I not have, how could I not have joined the Marine Corps? But at the time, I didn't know what it was. I, I just knew that I was looking for something. And I just, I truly just got lucky enough to find it when I did. Was there a desire to kind of get dirt under your nails also as an yeah, artist? hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's so funny. I see that. I was talking about this recently with some of the folks at Vet Rep where we were like um, running into young male actors mm. and young female actors. You, you bring in actresses and like, oh my God, all of them, just so much, so much talent. They're right. They're emotionally available right away. Young yeah. guys, not so much. Very hard to find. You can see talent, but the emotional availability isn't there. And I'll, I'll, the best I could think about it is I was like, I think in some of their cases, they haven't experienced enough life yet to be able to access the emotions they're being asked to, to have. And yeah. I know for me, I was, I'm, if I were acting now, I'd be infinitely better than I was when I was acting because you need that life. You need something to grade against. And I think it's just crucial for an artist. I think it's crucial for a creative artist, not an inter I mean, interpretive artist as well, but it's sure. a creative artist. Like you're building worlds. Like you gotta, you, there has to be something that, that you're, you know, can, can rub off on you in a way that is meaningful. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's almost like, uh, it's like I was saying with the dominoes. They, they, you have, they have to fall in such a way um, because you, you then understand, you know, like if <laughs> I remember reading um, back when Tumblr was alive and well, um, and I would I, uh, like my writing was on Tumblr and stuff. And I remember seeing a picture of somebody's Google search and it was like, what is the effects of cocaine? And the caption was, I am a writer. And I remember uh, thinking like, that is truly it. Like yeah. there are things that you don't know and you have to do research on, but for the most part, like you can go out and collect these experiences and I'm, I'm great. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse because I, I got the experiences, but they've come with different elements to it that, that make life interesting, you know, and, and unintended consequences, right? Sure. Things that you're like, never could have anticipated. Absolutely. But there is some, and I think, I mean, from Orwell to Hemingway, I mean, it just writers have to have lived a little, it's hard yeah. to be that person that just came out of the fucking womb with a ton of great stories. Like, I, Absolutely. I don't know, man, I don't know if that happens, you know, um, when you got into boot camp, how did it feel? <laughs> 
Would it feel like coming home? Did it feel like this is a good shock to the system? Did it still feel healthy or did it feel like eh, this is maybe a bridge too far? You know, <laughs> it felt great for a while. And um, I don't know if, if you remember that scandal that happened a few years back with the Marine recruit who was stuffed into a dryer and who later unfortunately committed suicide. No. Don't, so this mean, is back in this is back in 2016. I think his name was uh, Sadiq. I think that was his last name, or that might have been his first name. I don't remember. Um, that was my company in boot camp. Um, this this kid got hazed pretty bad and unfortunately committed suicide uh, within the first month, I believe, of boot camp. And so that kind of rocked the boat a little bit for everybody because everybody was like, the reality of what we were getting into became immediately present. And then it was followed up with our drill instructors got fired. Um, my senior drill instructor was facing 20 years in the brig for hazing. And I remember thinking exactly that, like, this is a bridge too far. Like, what did I get myself into? I thought Marines were supposed to protect other Marines. I thought we were supposed to take care of each other. And here, my this guy that I looked up to like a father was getting thrown to the wolves for something that wasn't even his fault. And I was like, they, like I was very aware that the Marine Corps was preserving its public image. And I thought, naively, but I thought I was getting into the Pacific where men were men and we were going to fight and hook and jab and we had each other's backs and fuck the system and fuck the man. It's us out in the dirt. Let's get it. And that depressed the hell out of me. I really was like, damn, like, what did I do? Um, but that faded. Once I got to my unit, that was gone. Were you excited then? Or were you <clears throat> still a little deer in the headlights? I mean, what, what, what was, what turned things around for you and where was your head at once you got to your unit? I think just going, like going through infantry school was a, a big title shift in terms of like, okay, this is what I was looking for. Like, this is your entry level running and gunning. Um, and that's what I wanted from my time in the Marines. Uh, so I was like, yeah, let's get it. And then when I got to my unit, <clears throat> my squad leader was a three time, um, and this is, fairly rare in the reserves. He was a three-time uh, veteran of Afghanistan. He was in Afghanistan three times, three different tours. And right before I deployed, my platoon sergeant was a, he was in Ramadi three times, I believe. So we had dudes who like, like legit chopped up bad guys in the Middle East who were like, you're going to get trained and it's going to be hard and it's going to suck. And I was like, Get some, like, let's go. Like yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I wanted. And so it really what like my unit. I mean, like, I love those guys to death. I to, like truly there, there is no, in my opinion, there are no greater examples of the best that this country has to offer. Like they are just the, the finest people I think I'll ever meet. Um, and I, I got very lucky is what I'll say. Cause the other platoons, no offense, were not as good as mine. They, they just, they, the camaraderie was not the same. 
the level of training wasn't the same. I just happened to get put in exactly where I needed to be. What was it like for you coming back as a reservist and now suddenly being plunged back into the civilian world, but now as a Marine and you're back to the same old friends, same old environment and all that. Did you feel like you wanted to be more in the Marine world? And it's, this was kind of like, ah, oh, son of a bitch, I'm right back here again. Was it a letdown? Like where, where was your head at when coming back home? Um, it kind of, I kind of rode the coattails of, you know, like the new guy boot bravado that you get when you come out of boot camp of like, I could literally fight anyone and come out on top. And so at first it was fine. Like at first I was like, yeah, I'm a Marine. What about it? Like that's, you should thank me. Yeah. So like the, the boot bravado kind of carried me over for like the first year. And then after the second year, I was like, okay, um, this, this kind of is what it is, but there were, there were rumors at that time as well, because we had just gotten back from ITX and there were rumors that we were slated for a deployment to Afghanistan. And so that kind of peaked it up a little bit where I was like, okay, like maybe we're good. Maybe I'll get my time in the sun. And then eventually we did um, deploy and coming back from that deployment was very difficult. That was in- incredibly difficult because I went from um, being in Helmand province to working at a GNC in South Jersey in the course of a month and a half. Sure. Sure. And um you know, I don't, I don't like to totem pull myself uh, with dudes that are active duty because I think that everybody who serves the, this country, regardless of what branch or what MOS you hold, like you're a rock star in my opinion. But the advantage of active duty is also its curse in that you're active duty. So you're there, you deploy, and then you go back to being there. Whereas I deployed and went back to my civilian life with very little time to figure out what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it was, it was very, it was a difficult uh, couple of years. I mean, I, I came back in 2019 and I feel like I'm just now starting to let the dust settle a bit. It it took uh, quite a bit of time for me to figure it out. Before you deployed to Afghanistan, what was happening with the writing now that you are a Marine and okay, you're doing one weekend a month or whatever, but I mean, does the writing, did you find it starting to take more of a back burner? Did you feel like yeah. it was okay? Yeah. And, and the reason it was, um, is I felt like it wasn't cool anymore. Like my, my perception of cool had changed and it was no longer mm. cool to be creative. It was now cool to, you know, go shooting with your friends or go yeah. to the bar and go, go to fight clubs or do jujitsu or whatever it was. That was the new cool. And then I came across um, Dead Reckoning Collective in 2017 when they, like, when they, I had heard about them when they first started. Um, and I was like, oh no, okay, it's, I can do both. I, yeah. I can do both. Um, and then it, it picked back up right before. Right before I deployed, I picked back up. I did a lot of writing 
on deployment. A lot of um, I wrote a lot of poems um, about being in country on deployment, and then it's just it hadn't stopped since then. It's just kind of gone. Did you while you were on deployment? So first off, let's talk about going on deployment. I'm assuming you were pretty excited to finally go. Stoked. Yeah. Oh yeah. <clears throat> when you touched down. Um, I'm assuming you went to Kandahar and then exhaled from there out to whatever yeah. club you're on and held. Yeah. Um, how'd that feel creatively? Was there, how were your first poems in country? How was your writing when you first started picking up the pen there? Was it still really adrenalized or was it a sense of wonder? What was going on for you? It was both, um, to be honest with you. I remember writing a lot. In- um, there was a sign as we were leaving, um, might've been Arab Jan or out. No, I think it was camp Arab Jan in Kuwait, uh, mm-hmm. as we were getting ready to fly into, uh, Forab, which is the old camp Leatherneck or it's the new camp. Leatherneck. Right. Um, and there was a sign that said, farewell or take care or something like that. And I remember I had a, you know, little moleskin thing and I kept as a diary and I remember writing, you know, that it, it felt like, um, both like angels singing triumphantly and the cold slam of a jail cell, like Uh. a death sentence, you know, like it, it felt both at the same time, this like, take care of like, all right, like you're about to go do it. But then it was also like, Hey, like get fucked. Um, it's a great and it was, way it, yeah, yeah. It it was it really was like I said, it was in a pivotal and vital domino to fall. It, it, it truly was. I wouldn't be half of the man nor the creative that I would be without those experiences um, out there. Didn't just truly. When was it that you got to Afghanistan? What year was it? Twenty eighteen or twenty nine? Twenty eighteen. Yes, September twenty eighteen. Okay. Um, when you <clears throat> actually got into, you found your battle rhythm in yeah. in Helmand. Um, what was it? What were you guys doing? What were you engaged in? Were you doing patrols <laughs> yeah. still, or what was going on for you guys? Yeah, so we would do patrols, uh, security patrols. Every day, every other day, uh, mostly we were we were glorified sec four is what we were. Um, that was the tasking order. So we stood post, um, went to the gym, did patrols, went to the gym. Like that was that was life for seven months. Um, we had a very uneventful, in terms of of contact. Uh, uneventful deployment. I mean, the most that we got was, you know, mortar and rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it was, I mean, it was very busy where we were. I, so we were on a little combat outpost. My platoon was um, about a click south of Lashkarga. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. it was just us. You know, it was a platoon of dudes and rotating from post to guardian angel missions to uh qrf missions and then you'd get a little bit of sleep 
after the gym mm-hmm. and then you'd, you'd wake up, you know, mm-hmm. after three, four hours, do it all over again. Um, what so was it was going- very, it was, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Finish out what you were saying. I was just going to say, it was just nonstop for yeah. Yeah. seven months. What was going Do you Did you understand what was going on at that time that you guys weren't being engaged heavier and you weren't running into stuff? Do you know what was going on at that time? It was right around when uh, the push for peace with the Taliban was occurring. Yeah. And there were two things that were, were going on and I, and one I can't substantiate. So take it for what it is, but there was a rumor going around that the um, commanding officer of the combat outpost was in line for a promotion. And, you know, cause where, where you, where we were, you would see at night tracer fire. I mean, you mm-hmm. could, you could hit targets from your post. That's mm-hmm. how close they were. Taliban is engaging with the ANA, mm-hmm. the AP, and there were several attempts to coerce our leadership to like go out and get these guys. Mm-hmm. And the rumor was that the commanding officer was in line for promotion and did not want to risk jeopardizing it with wounded or dead Marines. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think really what it was was just the political climate of the time. Um, I think it was just not in, in what we, where we were, we were not in line. My company, um, was attacked, um, a, a pretty significant attack by the Taliban, uh, in early March, I believe, I think the third of March, the, uh, Camp Shorab was attacked. Um, and that was incredibly disheartening. You what know, was it? Was it was it a complex attack? Was it ground assault? What was it? Ground assault. Um, okay. Yeah, and from what I understand, it, it was uh, duck hunt. You know, the video game duck hunt. From what my 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 boys that were there, um, that you just they were on the wall. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a perfect combat action ribbon. Perfect. It, you could not have asked for a better time as an infantry marine because. No one got hurt and therefore no one died. Mm-hmm. And my boys got some. And so it's like you, you could not have written it better. All the um, glory and none of the ghosts. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you feel? Oh, I was pissed. Man. Yeah. I was like, damn, yeah. like, go fucking figure. Like, like yeah. go figure. Yeah. Um, and at that point, coming at, towards the end of your deployment, I mean, you got to start doing the math and going, okay, what are my odds of getting back here and getting some? And yep. how were you feeling? I mean, obviously, you gave it away that you know you were kind of ready to call it a career after that deployment. But what was going on as your deployment wrapped up for you? Were you thinking, um, had it just been a disappointment from top to bottom? Was it demoralizing? Like, what, what exactly was it that was getting under your skin? Yeah, I think it was just, I, I knew, I knew immediately after coming home that I would never step foot in country again. There, there, for reservists, the deployment rhythm is, is not that way. It's, it's once every four years, I believe. 
And so I knew my time in the sun was over. I knew that the thing that I signed up to do would never take place. And so I was, I was very bitter um, in many, many different ways, systemically at the Marine Corps as a whole, um, at myself for joining, you know, like being so full. I was like, oh man, like, of course, like this is what you wanted to do. You did this and this is how it panned out. Like, look at you. Um, Why were you pissed at the Marine Corps? What did the Marine Corps do that pissed you off? Nothing. I mean, it's just immature, you know, immaturity. I think at the time of like, I felt that they had sold me a bill of goods or, you know, Mm -hmm. they wrote a check that they didn't cash. And it's, it was immaturity. I think that as I've, um, I got out in February um, and being out and having distance from the system and even having that, those, those years outside of Afghanistan, I've, I've realized that like, it's, it is what it is. There's, there's really, you don't get to control your life when you join the Marine Corps, you don't get to pick mm-hmm. your duty assignments. You don't get to pick mm-hmm. your deployments. It, it just is what it is. And you have to accept it. And so I just, I said, well, instead of being, angry about this for the rest of my life and, you know, commiserating at the VFW, I'm just going to accept it and move on. And I did. I mean, for the most part, I still think about it every now and again, but for the most part, it's, I just look at it with, with fond memories of like, it is what it is. What did it mean for you when you got out? Just walking around the streets, going back and trying to do the writing, mm. you know, um, I know that the temptation to be nostalgic and the temptation to, you know, um, not sit on your laurels, but kind of take a moment just to reflect and acknowledge what you did and the commitment, the sweat, the blood, the tears, all that stuff, you know, that, that can, you know, you can start to get regrets. You can start, you know, a lot of stuff can go through your head. What, what was your experience going through all that? I think, you know, after I got out, uh, I, it's kind of like we talked about new, with New Jersey, perfect analogy, because I looked at it with fondness. You know, I looked at it with like, I mean, I remember when I drove off base for the last time, I mean, I cried the whole way home. I loved, yeah. I loved being in the ring. I mean, it was, I loved it. And I look back at it as one of the loves of my life that is in the past. And, and it's not like we didn't have a messy breakup. Just things have to end sometimes. That's a part of being alive is things come to an end and there is pain in that. Um, but it really did um, open up writing in, in, a different way where I could, cause I, I started writing poetry or I started putting poetry out on Instagram uh, about a year before I checked out. Um, <clears throat> and I kind of, I kept it low key. I didn't put my mm-hmm. name to it. Right. Um, and a couple of the guys that I <clears throat> was in charge of actually were like, would follow this page, you know, that, that mm. and I was like, well, that's kind of, weird um 
And I noticed that when I got out, the, the writing had shifted from commiserating and, and talking about these experiences to fonder memories, looking back and like um, deeper appreciation for what it meant to serve, what it meant to be a leader, what it meant to be a part of something bigger than myself. Um, and it, it's the shift. I think you need, I think you need to have something like that to make the shift. Cause I think that good writing is what's the word evocative. And in order to evoke, you have to show the horror of the, you have to show the muck and the mud and the, the worms because if you don't, then you don't appreciate the sunshine and the, the blue mm-hmm. jays. You, you just yep. don't. Yep. Um, and, and I think having that circle being completed um, really just, it, like I said, that was one of those dominoes that I had to check. I couldn't, I could not be a lifer. I couldn't. It's, it was not part of my story. And once that domino fell, it was a huge, a huge revelation in terms of how writing should be done. It's really interesting. Your writing, Mason's writing, probably the two most prominent examples I can think of that articulate the agony of not having a combat badge Mm. or a combat ribbon. And I think the fact that both of you were infantrymen and both of you served roughly the same time period (laughs) and there's nothing you can do about it. It's not your call. All you can do is go where you're sent and the bad guys get a vote too. And if they don't show up, they don't show up and not a lot you can do about that. Right. Um, But nonetheless, just that, that I think there's an interesting dynamic for non-combat veterans. I think of the statistics, you know, when they talk about the suicide rates and all that, it's Mm -hmm. way more non-combat veterans than combat veterans. And I don't, I mean, we can talk about that. I don't have any sort of empirical answers as to why I think that is. I can mildly speculate, but I do think there's a deeply underreported calamity of lost glory or a chance or, or just one, you know, you went all that way. You're fucking there, man. You're in Hellman. Be nice if we showed up for a fight, like motherfucker, Absolutely. I came all this way I, yeah. I like to get my fight. Right. You know? And I think there's, I, I, I think that's something that I think it's hard for a lot of people to appreciate. And it, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to ramble in search of a question here, but that's um, okay. I'm going to try to throw out enough threads for you to pick up on. I've been thinking a lot lately about how there's no cultural, we don't have a cultural language in this country for war to understand and process war the way that the GWAT has been, because mm-hmm. all of our language has been steeped in the Vietnam era. Hey, my country sold me out. I never wanted to go. I just want to smoke reefer, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, man, the GWAT, we wanted to go fight. Yeah. So if you didn't get it, we don't have the language. We haven't built the cultural lexicon sure. to process those emotions because there's nothing in our recent culture that allows us to, to go, oh, yeah, that's what I was feeling. You go through a breakup, there's a million fucking songs on the radio for it. But you go <laughs> yeah. through that. There's yeah. nothing, you know, there's nothing to say, Hey man, you were right there. Fist cocked. 
And the other yeah. dude just never showed up. Like, what can you do? And I guess um, le- in search of a question, let me, let me throw this out to you as the poet. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your take on, or what, what would be the best way to explain to somebody like a loved one, an immediate family member who doesn't get it, to explain why that is, why there's a little bit of agony in that and why that's sometimes even harder to process than combat? Good question. I've been I've been searching for the right words for a few years now. Um, I th- I think what it comes down to, you know, you you take a dog and you put it in a cage. Not even a dog. You take a lion and you put it in a cage, and you run along. You know, the bars with a stick. You piss it off and you poke it and you prod it. And the lion's like, all right, I'm getting really mad. And the minute you let me out of this cage, I'm going to tear everything to pieces. And the lion looks at other lions that have been released, running free and wild. And he's like, I'm going to get my time and I'm just going to tear shit to pieces. And then the cage never opens. And so you, you do have this pent up. It is, it is more than aggression. It's, it's more than, it's not hatred, but it's more than aggression. You have this pent up, it's your identity. It's who you are. Yes. You know, you are literally primed. You're wired. You're told you are no longer a human. You are a machine of death. You are, your purpose is to inflict violence and death. That is what your, your job is that your identity is that. You're a kid, like, I mean, in the Marine Corps, you'd have staff sergeants come up to you like, hey, what's up, killer? Like, that's what they would call you, killer. You know, one of the, one of the responses Marines give is kill. Right. <laughs> and right. and it, it is this, I, it is so deeply ingrained within the warrior that when you don't have a war to go to, or you worse, I think, because I, I think that my junior Marines who did not deploy, who were just reservists the whole time, I think that they're going to have an easier time because they didn't step foot in the country. Right, right. You know, it is, it is very much this lion is just waiting and the cage, you know, it's just the cage gets unlocked, but it doesn't get open, you know. And for the sake of the metaphor, the, the lion can't manipulate anything to, to it has the cage has to be open for this thing to run free. And the, the lion watches the lock come off and he's like, all right, like any day now, any day. And then a couple months go by and the lock goes back on. And then you have to you have to reconcile it. I, I think that it to be blunt, I think that it it will it it, it can. If you're not careful, it can kill you. Um, truly, that identity of you're a killer, you're a warrior with no war. If you don't reconcile that and you don't process that and accept your the stakes of what happened and what you're doing now, and you don't put that to bed, it can be very detrimental. I think because it was for me for a while, truly. I wonder if there's also another aspect of identity 
which is self-knowledge. Mm. The lure of combat, not, not even as an act of hatred or bloodlust even, but just as an act of self-knowledge. Hey, what would I do if I was in that situation? Yeah. You're one of the few that gets to, that would get to answer that and go, well, this yeah. is what I did. And I know exactly what I'm made of, right? I, yeah. I feel like that's a big part of it, especially for that, guys. Never been a girl, excellent. so I don't know what girls think of. But I feel like for guys, sure. like you want to know like the peak of your maleness is like, what would I do if, well, this is your chance to answer that. And to not get sure. that answered, I feel like leaves chips on the table. Like you don't yeah. know. You're like, I don't know. I went all this way, but I never got that answered. Right? A little bit? Yeah. I think that's spot on. I think it's because I think every... I think everyone has to go through a rite of passage. And for the warfighter, the rite of passage is the war. And so, you know, it's, it's, that is how you show yourself worthy of being considered a warrior um, would be the traditional narrative. I, I disagree with that, but that's the traditional narrative. You know, like, um, you know, if you're a warrior without a war, what are you? And I think to be able to prove yourself in combat for an infantryman, there is no greater. That is it. That is the pinnacle. That is what, that is once you do that, then it's about rank. If you're staying in, huh. like what rank am I going to get next? Right. I've done, I've done what I, what I signed up to do. What's next. Um, you, you said you disagreed with that warfighter um, archetype. Yeah. What, how do you talk to me about what you think? How do you process this? I mean, I think the, the, the being a warrior is a state of mind. It's a state of being. Um, so I can wake up like I did today early, have a garage gym. I can impose, you know, if, um, if I can steal a line from Jocko, impose discipline, you know, um, that is my war. My war is with myself. It's, it's with my, with, with myself every day. And I don't need to conquer an enemy. I don't need to like raise a village, you know, I don't need mm -hmm. to lay waste. Going to the gym when I don't want to is a battle. That's a battle. And doing that and succeeding. Okay. I crushed the workout, did deadlifts. That is victory. And I think that now as a civilian, it's a battle of inches every day. It's a battle of inches of, am I going to do what I'm supposed to do? Or am I going to fuck off and be lazy? Am I going to spend time with my family or am I going to, you know, isolate? Am I going to call my friends or am I going to just like hope for the best? And so you can wage war with those little moments now. And that is the, that's the war that we face, I think. And and so if we're fighting that war, then we are. I am still a warrior. Yeah, it's that sense of identity that transcends just whether or not you're in the military. Sure. Yeah, it's lifelong. I, I think that that's why they say once a marine, always a marine, which is something else I disagree with because I'm not in the Marine Corps anymore. I was, but I think that I'll always. I will always have what the Marine Corps gave me, which is that fighting spirit. Um, and so you, 
you identify what is what is next. Now that I'm here, what is next? Okay, well, I'm going to go back to school. And you begin to assault in that direction. I want to be a really good dad. I don't have kids, I'm just using this as an example. Um, and you assault in that direction. Or I want to be a good mom or a good wife or a good husband or a good neighbor or a good employee, a good boss. And whatever your target and objective is, you're a warrior. So you're going to assault and you're going to conquer that and, and, and secure that objective. And then when you get there, you identify the next one and you do that until you're old and wrinkly. And it was a good fight. That's, that's how that is. If I could have an, one thing on my tombstone, it was a good fight. It would be on there because that's how I look at life. When you sit down to write now, <clears throat> do you feel like the valve is purged? Like you're like, hey, I don't feel like I have to prove myself. I don't feel like a desire for the physical. I'm like, I can sit here. I can focus. My mind is clear. I'm very yeah. comfortable just writing. Kind of got it out of my system. Is there that sense? That is a great question. Sometimes, yes. If I'm doing the right things, like today, so I'll be writing. Um, when we wrap up, um, I'm, I got a target of about a thousand words for today, and I'm going to crush that shit. Let me tell you, because I've I've knocked off um, everything I have to do. I went to the gym, had a good workout. Once when I do the things that I know I need to do, the writing comes easy. If I don't, it's harder. Like if I know that I'm leaving something on the table, it's I'm like, I'm very ADD. So I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I, I got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you write every day? I try to. Um, I go through periods. Um, I am afflicted with like a deep-seated loathing of what I write. <laughs> You know, like I, and, but I, the thing is, is I love to write. I love to, um, for me, it's like, uh, I read a book when I was deployed called catching the big fish by David Lynch. And it was about, you know, priming the mind for ideas. And he relates cinema, but I'll use it in writing, uh, as dreaming, mm, you know, mm -hmm. go, like you go into another world and, Man, I love that process. The ideas, I love the ideas. And I think that I love them so much that when I see them on a page, I'm like, that's just not quite right. Mm -hmm. And I just, I have to, I'll put it aside for a bit and then I'll come back to it. Um, and so I ebb and flow. I'll write every day for a month and then I'll put it away for a couple of weeks and then I'll write every day for a month. Um, that's kind of how it's been. And when you're writing, are you writing the same piece? Are you working on the same project? Or is it just writing, putting pen to paper? And hey, if a poem comes out today, a poem comes out today. Yeah, it, it's it's mostly the same. The Mostly the novel is, is what's getting chipped away at. Um, but the, the short story uh, that I read um, was... I sat down to write the novel and something else came out. Mm. And so it's like, okay, you do that. Then um, sometimes it is a poem. Poems usually are 
um, if I'm waiting in line somewhere, like I said, I have a notebook and those are usually what comes then. Um, or like if I'm, if I get a particularly deep burst of inspiration, like if I see something like particularly beautiful or if I have like an idea that I want to capture and it's not, has nothing to do with the, the, the novel, that's usually a poem. Do you hate your poetry when you write? I hate it? everything I write. Really? I really do. Uh, everything I do. Because I really, like, <laughs> I, I wrestled with putting stuff out on Instagram for a long time. Um, because I am in desperate need of validation. And uh, so I did, I did not want to stoke the fire. Um, I, I was like, I don't. I didn't want to post anything because it's like, what if they hate it? But the more horrifying thought is, well, what if they love it? Then what do I do? Like, what if I just knock it out of the park, the first poem, and I get 10,000 followers and a million likes? And then I got to, ne- what's the next piece going to be? What if they hate it? The, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I come off, I play it off like I don't care. Uh, I do deeply. And I, I don't know. I think it's something from, I think like when I was talking about earlier with that mentality of religion being pervasive over my artistic expression as a kid, I think there are still remnants of that. And so I think it's, it's not so much hatred maybe as it is still guilt, you know, Mm. uh, of, of childhood of feeling like I'm letting the big man in the sky down. I meant to ask that actually. It's a question I've asked a couple of people when it mm-hmm. seemed appropriate on the show before. When you deployed in the back of your mind someplace, was there ever mm-hmm. the idea that, hey, if something happens to me over here, mm-hmm. it's really going to suck, not just because it sucks to get tagged, but mm-hmm. on top of it, I'm never going to get to do my book. I'll never get this workout. Was there ever that sense of like, son of a bitch? That would really fucking suck. Question. No. Um, not then. But I have thought that, like looking back, I thought, man, it's a right. good thing. Right. Because this is a great idea. And like, it's a we- I have a weird love-hate relationship because I love, like I said, love the idea. And I'm like, that is such a good thing that I get to still tell this story. Cause you know, where would it go? Like, yeah. where does, where does an idea, does it, is it alive? Like, is right. it just die with me? Um, not in the moment though. No, definitely in, in hindsight. Interesting. I meant to ask also, what was your writing like when you came back? How was it different? Did you notice a difference? Was it just subject yeah. matter? Was it tone? Was it perspective? What was, how did it change? Um, it became more grounded. So my, my writing before was ethereal. Um, like I, I believe in abstraction. Um, the novel that I'm working on is a horror novel. And the reason it's a horror novel is because you can take an idea like this is not what it's about. I'm just going to do this mm-hmm. live. You can take an idea about love or loss 
And if you sit with that idea and you think like, okay, well, what does that feel like? Loss is total, is overwhelming. It's like a being stabbed in the heart with an electric toothbrush. You know, it's just like this deep vibratory sense of total all-encompassing pain. And so if you sit with that long enough and you think, okay, well, what, what else could feel like that? And you just abstract something long enough, you'll come to a point where you have your movie monster, so to speak. And it doesn't have to be a, a Frankenstein's Prometheus. It doesn't have to be Freddy Krueger. But you can have something that is horrific and tell two stories at the same time. And that's what's fun for me, is you can tell a straightforward story, like Stephen King's It is about a clown alien who kills kids. But it's also about generational trauma. It's also about child neglect. It's also about, you know, like developmental um, psychology and growing up as a kid. And you can tell two different stories at the same time with horror. And my writing before was up here. It was flowery language. It wasn't really grounded. It was more conceptual. It was abstracted still, but it was conceptual where after I got to use your term, which I love and I'm stealing uh, dirt under my fingernails, um, it became more grounded because, you know, I got to see what it was like um, in a different country, in in arguably a different world. Like if you told me Afghanistan was on a different planet and we didn't fly there, we took a rocket ship, I believe you. And when you see that, it, it, it does humble you in, in many ways. And I think it humbled me quite a bit in my writing where I wasn't so pretentious. I was more level-headed where I could still tell a scary story that is twofold. Actually, it's manifold, but that's yeah. irrelevant. Um, but it's with, with grittier language, more grounded language more grounded imagery and less conceptual and douchey for lack of a better <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah. So when you say it was ethereal, was it ethereal in terms of it? Like you're not even capturing a setting. You're really just like in the fucking clouds or was it like you were writing specifically about the concept as opposed to telling a story that would allow you to see the concept? Like yeah, that. it's so it, it was more like it was less storytelling and describing the the general feeling, mm, you know, yeah, of yeah. of what it was. Where now it's like very boots on the ground. You know where you are. You know where the characters are. You know where they're going. You know what they're dealing with. You know what they're thinking. Um, I love it, man. I love. It. I, I I really have to walk it back because I really do love this piece. The idea is just, it's so good. I, I'm really happy with it. I just, I hate it immediately after I'm done writing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's normal. I think that's normal. I sometimes maybe not write after writing it. Mm. Sometimes write for writing it, but sometimes I think also, um, like the next day you come and you're like, man, I thought I was on fire yesterday, but this is actually, yeah. Fucking shit, man. What? Yeah. What are you trying to say? You know? Yeah. Um, 
did you feel that through the military, let's just wrap up your whole military experience as one big mm-hmm. package. Did you, did you feel like you got a better sense of some emotional truth so that when you're writing, there's a greater sense of, and I'm just throwing shit out here, mm-hmm. uh, stress, fatigue, um, isolation, mm. disappointment, like just a lot of like emotional truths are a bit more accessible to you. Cause you're like, Hey, I've kind of seen some of the extremes of humanity and I oh, kind yeah. of internalize that and mind that a little bit now. Yeah. I mean, I think that you really do. You get to see the best and the worst of humanity. Um, you get to see the, again, the beauty and the horror you, you, don't get to appreciate the one without the other. And I mean that both ways. You don't appreciate the horror for what it is. Um, and you don't appreciate the beauty without the, without the other. Um, and I think that gathering those experiences and, and sort of putting them in the proverbial toolbox of the mind, mm-hmm. it's allowed me to get a good sense of what the characters, if they go through that, I'm like, I don't know how to write that because I felt that I can describe that because I know what that's like. It's, it's, I don't have to Google like that Tumblr. Yeah. I don't have to Google. What does it feel like to be alone? Uh, I I know uh, what that feels like. Right. Do you read frequently? Oh yeah. I love reading. Who do you like reading? Um, Gosh, my, my biggest, I think I am Jack Kerouac's probably biggest fan mm. alive. Um, but I love Stephen King. Obviously I'm a, I'm a big horror nerd. Um, love Hemingway, the classics, Vonnegut, um, mm. Steinbeck, Chuck Palahniuk. Um, yeah, I, I have, I mean, I'll send you a picture. I have a library in my office. That's not even, I think 85% of my books are on the shelf and it's jam packed. Um, I, I like to cycle. So I used to read more than I do now. Um, unfortunately, but I like to diversify my fiction reading. Um, mm-hmm. so like if I go to a bookstore, I go to a used bookstore, I'll just go to the fiction section. And as long as it's not like cheap trash, you know, pick something up that looks interesting and read that. Do you ever read commercial fiction? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do occasionally like, like I would consider Stephen King commercial fiction. That is true. Yeah. You know, that's, that's probably true. I, I read him. Um, but like I, I used to read um the hell was his name? He did the James Patterson. James Patterson. James Patterson. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um I've I've read a couple of his books. Um John Grisham novels, you know. I, I like I love like mysteries. Mystery yeah. and horror are yeah. my like my favorite. Um they are my absolute favorite. Um so like anything involving that. Those yeah. types of elements, I'll gobble that shit up. I find myself, I don't know if you can relate. I find myself, sometimes I get intimidated reading the greats or reading, mm-hmm. and when I say the greats, literature. 
I'll just go, oh my God, you see the craft and you're like, oh my yeah. God, like the years you put into doing that. Not to, and, and commercial fiction, I'm not, this is not a critique of commercial fiction because it has its its own peaks and valleys. Sure. But for me, when I read commercial fiction, I go, oh, motherfucker, I could write that. And I could write yeah. that better. And I got better story. So I find it very inspiring to read commercial fiction because it makes me truly inspired to go write something that maybe an objective person would go, yeah, you're no fucking James Patterson. Just settle down. But yeah. to me, I'm like, shit, if they could say that, this simply about this, I could write something with just, if I added this of me a bit more literary and then I could do this. And it's like, yeah. it, it, for some reason, I find it very energizing to read that. Whereas when I read somebody that's really fucking like blows me away, like paragraph one, I'm like, Oh fuck. I don't think I'm ever going to get there. You know? Yeah. It, I don't know. That's just me though. Yeah. I, I mean, I t- totally agree. I have, I have come across books that I've read and I'm like, I could read that. Um, there was a, there was a book that came out recently called the shadows, I think, and it was a horror novel. Um, and, you know, I was listening to a passage from it and I was like, man, I could do this. So much <laughs> I was like, get out of here with this. <laughs> but then you, you do, I think you need both. You, you need do. like, yeah. you need to have the balance because I think when you read, when you read, you really do learn how to write. If you're if you're reading carefully, you can. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, one of one of the famous things about him was he typed The Great Gatsby on a typewriter. That's how he learned his his prosaic structure. Um, was just copying word for word The Great Gatsby. That's how he learned his rhythm. I don't know if that's true. That's the legend. I mean, the dude is like sure. as mysterious as you could be, you know, like he's <laughs> walking around with a suitcase of every drug. Gun. And it's like, I bro, you, did you really? But, you know, I think that you, you do need to, you do need both. You do need both. Dude, this has been, I feel like this has been a longer time coming than it has. This has been a blast to have you on. I had Tell so everybody, much fun. Seriously, like uh, this, this has just been, I, I really enjoyed the shit out of this. Yeah. Um, tell everybody where they need to follow you and all the stuff that you're doing. And if they want to keep tabs on you, how they need to do that. Yeah. So if um, my personal page is, is pretty much private to people that I know. Um, however, I publish semi-regularly like poems and such uh, at the Ashes of Helmand on Instagram. So you can follow me on there. Um, and I'm in the works of putting together a sub stack where I'm going to put out like poetry and uh, the occasional short story. So that'll get updated on the Instagram page when that gets released. Betchen. Steve, let's do this again, brother. This was great. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Whenever I will be here. That was the savage wonder of Steve Callahan. I really enjoyed talking with Steve. Um, look forward to talking to him again and uh i'll segue that into a shameless plug for vet rep obviously our first sponsor of this week's episode is second mission foundation as i said up front our second sponsor this week is veterans repertory theater and if you like steve and you like his work uh, check out our literary blog because we will be featuring stuff from steve on it um you can find it, find the blog, and see how to subscribe. It's very easy. It's free. 
um, by going to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. And for those of you that are not familiar with it, Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. We are very quiet right now at VetRep when it comes to public-facing things that I can talk about, brag about, and publicize to you. Uh, We are busy as hell behind the scenes. We have a lot of stuff we have to do to get ourselves lined up for our 2023 season, which really starts in late March, early April, uh, when we can really start doing live performances again. But we take these next couple months to refit and uh, reload. Man, I'd like to tell you about some of the stuff we're doing, but I can't. Suffice to say, we're doing a lot of workshops that are private. We're doing, uh, we're just getting everything ready. So we're going to have Savage Wonderground events coming up soon. Uh, we will have shows at the parlor in Cornwall, New York. And we may even have some plays coming to you from um, in New York City. So if you're in the area, by all means, check it out. The best way to stay on top of everything we're doing at VetRep is to go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, and subscribe to our literary blog. Because it's not just a literary blog, it's also our mailing list. So basically the way it works is we end up giving you, like daily, a little taste of some veterans writing. And then below it, we put a bunch of shameless plugs. So there's that. So check it out, uh, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. Go to the Now Playing tab. You'll see how to subscribe to the blog for free and all that stuff. Okay, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and on behalf of Steve Callahan and everybody at Havoc Journal, see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.